0: You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania.
1: Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's
0: Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah.
2: And hey, it's Grace. And today we're going to do something a little bit different Because it is September and that starts spooky season for me. So, this isn't exactly a crime, although the guy's kind of a criminal. But this specific thing is not a crime, but it is something weird and technically unsolved. So, I hope you enjoy. This is about the Rain Man of Stroudsburg. So, on February 24th, 1983, A funeral was held for 63-year-old James Kishaw, I believe. Sure, everyone's nodding. (laughs) In Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. His 21-year-old grandson, Donald Decker, was being held at the county jail for receiving stolen property. But he was granted a furlough in order to attend his grandfather's funeral. Now, James and Donald had a complicated history. Uh, Don alleged that James had physically abused him from the age of seven. So, you know, when he went to the funeral, it obviously upset Don to hear his parents glorifying the man um, afterwards. So he went to spend the night with some friends instead of staying with his parents. And those friends were Bob and Jeannie Kiefer. So he arrived at their home and not long after he began to feel a little uneasy, like a chill was coming over him. And at one point it said he went into a trance like state. And suddenly water began dripping from the ceiling. So the Kiefer's decided to call their landlord and I guess their friend being in a trance like state could wait and wasn't that important. And it's never really mentioned again. I'd be a little concerned like if all of a sudden Sarah was like not responding, (laughs) like maybe I would call for help for her, but they were more worried about the plumbing, I guess. So when the landlord, Ron, arrived, he was surprised at the amount of water that was supposedly coming from nowhere. Uh, Everyone's assumption at first was that pipes were leaking, but it actually turned out there were no pipes in that area of the home that the water could be coming from. And Ron, the landlord, also noted that the water wasn't just coming down from the ceiling at some points. Apparently, it was coming up from the floor or even traveling sideways. Now, I mean, I want to note that it wasn't raining at the time or anything like that.
3: Okay, so pipes might not be in that specific area, but like if it travels the path of least resistance, then it could be. It's kind of like what we call referred pain um on the ambulance or like medical like you can have pain in one place but it could be something else so i'm wondering if that's the case but then water coming up from the floor was it like maybe the floor was soaked and they were stepping on it or was it like
2: shooting up so from apparent eyewitness statements they say that it was just kind of like kind of like crawling up the wall is the like (laughs) the idea that I get from it, it was like crawling up the wall. And sometimes it was even going like sideways along the wall. So yeah.
0: First of all, I don't like the idea and the image of water (laughs) crawling up the wall and (laughs) listeners, since you can't see us recording, the reason Grace started laughing out of nowhere is because I started shivering when she said it. Um, (laughs) I don't like that. Um, I also wanted to ask, um, is is this in like a house, an apartment building? Do we know what floor? I I'm just trying it was to think of a rented of... house. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I'm... my question was were, were they just noticing it on the wall, the water coming up, down and sideways, or was it like in the middle of the room, or was it just along like the outside four walls? I think
2: where they it was like Raining from the whole ceiling is the the idea that I get, but they only really noticed the water droplets moving along the walls.
1: If, well, I wonder if there was like a fan or something to Or
2: vents. Yeah, maybe.
3: Yeah, something.
1: Maybe.
2: Yeah.
3: And the guy's still just sitting
2: in the corner <laughs> in a trance. It's unclear. Are we forgetting it's about that? It's unclear whether he kind of like snapped out of it. I mean, there's different stories you know so i don't know if the whole time he was just weirdly in the corner and everyone's like this is fine <laughs> but
0: I, the snozberries taste like <laughs> I it's like the meme of the dog sitting in the kitchen with flames everywhere saying <laughs> this is fine it's all fine except it's water exactly. and not fire
2: like, that's exactly what i picture and they do um this was on unsolved mysteries in the 80s and I would watch it just for the reenactments because it's gold and Robert stack, obviously, but like the reenactments <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it's on, there's like, um, an old sci-fi special on it or something from like the eighties or nineties. So it's, it's real good, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, so it's raining sideways and upside down. This guy is or isn't still in a trance. Um But yeah, so then Ron the landlord ended up calling the police and then told his wife to come over because why not? Uh officers that responded could not explain what they experienced when they walked into the house. They got immediately soaked when they walked into the living room and um the Keefers reported that the water was only coming in in that particular room. So just in the living room where we said there's no pipes and it was apparently raining really hard because the responding officers said that they got really wet. So Don and the Keefers went to go to a restaurant across the street because apparently by this point, the water had been coming in for hours and they hadn't had anything to eat. And When I read about this on the Unsolved Mysteries website, it seemed like they were, like, in this room for, like, 20 hours. I'm like, why are you in a room where it's raining for... I don't understand. But eventually they had to eat. Yeah.
0: Was the water accumulating? Or was (laughs) it just kind of dripping against the wall? I mean, I'm thinking if it's raining to the point where they're getting soaked, uh, is... Are they like sitting in a foot of water with Dude man in a trance in the corner? You would think
2: that because it, the officers made it seem like it's pouring in here, but like maybe sometimes it was pouring and sometimes it was just a light drizzle. <laughs> because I didn't get the idea that they were like standing in water and they just like sitting on the couch like, "Hmm, this is interesting. Got the munchies. Let's go across yeah, the you know street. You really
0: go for is a cheeseburger right now." Despite the fact that my house is filling with water in just one room, right,
2: and a cheeseburger and a parka, please, yeah, Don's like, wow, that trance left me famished. <laughs> I took <it> some food. <laughs> They've actually been smoking marijuana the entire time.
0: <laughs> there has to be drugs, right? Like, <laughs> there's got to be something going on here.
2: So they went over to this restaurant. Um... The landlord, Ron, and his wife stayed behind, uh, and the officers left to file a report. So Ron and his wife reported that as soon as everyone else left, the water suddenly stopped. And Ron even originally said he was sure it had something to do with one of them, meaning either Don or Jeannie or Bob Kiefer. So I don't know exactly what he meant by that. If he automatically assumed it was something supernatural or if he thought they were playing a trick, which what a shitty trick, (laughs) but they said that it stopped as soon as they left. So the owner of the restaurant across the street, her name was Pam. She had apparently, I guess she was friends with the Kiefers because she had been in their house earlier that day and she had seen the rain. So she was convinced that that was the work of the devil coming through Don Decker. And I guess they just assumed it was Don because he was the one that was a criminal. So why not work through him? Did you have something to say, Sarah? Well, and
0: it was the Kiefer's house. Yeah. So if they were the ones doing it, it would be happening all the time. Fair. So yeah. he was the new piece introduced that, you know, if they were capable of it, it would be raining all the time in their house. But now that he's this new person in the house. He was the variable in this
2: science experiment. Right, right. (laughs) Don
3: the devil. (laughs) Yep. I get, like, this idea
2: of, like, Charlie Manson and his creepy face sitting in the corner, just, like, sitting in rain. Right. And it's so... I thought that Don Decker, like, I don't remember this Unsolved Mysteries episode, so I didn't remember what he looked like originally, but he looks like a pretty normal guy. Like I expected him to be real creepy, but
3: um, Lucifer looks pretty normal, so you know. Fair enough. <laughs> <I'm> just saying,
0: <laughs> valid.
2: So Pam, the restaurant owner, convinced that it's the work of the devil, and then once the keepers and Don sat down at the restaurant, water began dripping from the ceiling, and again, there was no weather happening outside. It wasn't raining. Apparently, it wasn't actively snowing. There may have been snow on the ground, but um. Yeah, so it started raining from the ceiling. Pam went to grab their crucifix that she kept in the cash register. So I'm going to read that again. She grabbed her crucifix from the cash register. And then she, you know, the totally normal. So she gave it to Don. But as soon as he touched it, his skin began to burn and the cross turned black. And then Pam concluded that he was obviously possessed
1: because... Well, I have a question. Is it just her account, or are the two others, like, backing up her I story? I believe they
2: are. They seem to back up oh. and these stories from, like, their own home and the restaurant. Um, and they even have the stories of the officers, but yeah.
3: Do they serve pea soup?
2: What? <laughs> oh, wait. Be- yeah. this okay. Got it. What I was do like... Do they mm-hmm. serve pea soup? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say it was like a pizza joint, but I could be wrong. Okay.
0: <laughs> it would make sense, though, if we're looking at this mm-hmm. as that possibility of being some sort of possession, that there would be some sort of kind of local to that person. So wherever that person goes, there's this sort of unexplainable events happening. I mean, it's not unheard of in documented cases of possessions. Um, I mean, even just like reading through the Bible and where there are possessions, I mean, you'll see kind of these unnatural things happening whenever there's any sort of possession of any body or, um, like human or animal. You kind of see this kind of stuff. So, I mean, it, it would make sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, just watch like Paranormal Activity, where like the mm-hmm. people are the. Yes, watch ones. a
0: fictional movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it's based on real events, Sarah. My bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: Um. Okay. So where was I? He's possessed. Pam is sure of it. So Don and the Kiefer's return to the home, and Ron's wife and Jeannie Kiefer began to accuse Don of making this all happen. And in the reenactment and the um, Unsolved Mysteries, they're just like letting him have it. Like, how dare you?
0: <laughs> they're just like screaming at him. If someone came into my house and made it rain <laughs> in my living room and was ruining my floors and my walls, I would probably scream at them also. So... Yeah, can't but what if them. they
2: can't control it and they're just possessed by the devil? It's not their fault. <laughs> Call did he actually, like, talk back or did he just sit there in a trance? <laughs> I think he was in a trance at this point. I think, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was just like, sorry, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> he got a Snickers. He's not the same person. Yeah, right? He had some food. He's like, I was just angry, guys. I'm really sorry. So, so they're yelling at him. And suddenly the pots and pans began to rattle and then Don levitated off the floor and was flown or thrown by some unknown force across the kitchen. I mean, just really whipped across the kitchen. So then all of a sudden they're concerned for his well-being. They're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that I yelled at you.
0: That sounds like possession. I mean, it's (laughs) it's lining up. Seriously. And the trance-like state. It It legitimately lines up.
2: Yeah. But all I can, I mean, all I can think about is the 80s reenactments, and it's
0: just. Well, yeah.
2: Basically, 1B movie. (laughs) Yes. So the two officers who had responded previously came back with the Stroudsburg chief of police who was pissed that they called him there because he was a true skeptic. And he said, this isn't a police problem. It's a plumbing problem. And he believed that the keepers and Don were playing a joke on them. And he ordered the officers to leave and not come back and not file any sort of report. He was just like, leave it alone. It's not our problem
0: how do you even file a paranormal police report? Like (laughs) how do you, how do you document and log that without it looking just like a plumbing issue?
2: Yeah. And it said that the officers had left originally when everyone else went to the restaurant It said that they left to file a report. So I have no idea what they wrote. And
3: well, I couldn't write it inside. I I know. Right. (laughs) Did they make the pads that you could write in the rain then? Probably not. <laughs>
2: Who knows? But they probably didn't have them. So, but the police chief was like, this is not even an issue. Don't come back here. Um, so, but anyway, against the chief's orders, three police officers returned to the keeper house the next day to try and figure out what the hell was going on. And while there, one of the officers had Don hold his hands behind his back And in the reenactment, he, like, blindfolds him and everything. And um, while Don can't see what's going on, an officer dropped a crucifix into his hand. And immediately, apparently without knowing what it was, Don yelled out that it was burning him and dropped the cross. And then it started raining again. So um, at that point, Don was lifted off the ground and thrown across the room again, again, by an unknown force. And when the officers went over to assist him, they saw three claw marks on his neck that were bleeding. So this guy is getting the shit just beaten out of him.
0: So, not a serious recommendation, but this is where my brain went. They should have just called a priest to come in and bless the water that was raining down because then it would be holy water, (laughs) and if he was possessed, it would force the demons out um i'm i'm gonna what go crawl under my desk now
2: skin off first that's a lot of holy water just to throw on a demon you know
0: that's true the power that's true. of christ compels yeah, you maybe
2: it was just too <laughs> risky sarah <laughs>
0: that's true that's true isn't there some sort of symbolism in the idea of three claw marks I know six has symbolism, but isn't there something with three Yeah, he's only as well? half evil. Oh, well, okay. I'm not, it's a demon, not the devil.
2: Yeah, I'm not it's sure. It's only halfway there. Yeah, right, exactly. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just concerned. Everyone has a crucifix. <laughs> right. No like they just, just walk around with them.
3: Like, it's not like just a cross. It's like, aren't they bigger? Well, I mean, you. I don't think they have to be. They don't. They can be okay. So it could just be like a cr- a necklace with a cross that
2: can still be considered a crucifix, I had to right? Be, like any sort of.
3: I thought they were like big, like hold out in front of you, and like.
2: I mean, mayb- I maybe maybe you watch to too many size. movies. That could be it.
0: <laughs> the only Sarah. difference, um, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure um, a cross is obviously just you know the the two lines in a cross a crucifix is going to depict jesus on it oh so that's that's the difference i don't think size matters as far as (laughs) (laughs) that's what he said god oh my lanta the size of the crucifix with jesus on it yeah we're talking about jesus gravy. Um, no, I don't think it has to be like a huge statue like what you would see hanging in a church or something. I mean, you could have a crucifix necklace and I think that would be considered a crucifix. I think it's just as long as it depicts Jesus on the cross, it's considered a crucifix rather than just a cross.
2: Well, either way, everyone had one, I guess. So um. So yeah, that burned him. He got thrown across the room. So the next logical step closer, close to blessing the holy water, um, an exorcism. So they did that. They called in the priest and that seemed to fix the, the problem for a bit until Don returned to the county jail. So once he got back into his cell, the rain appeared again in the jail cell soaking his cellmate and in the reenactment the cellmates just like get me out of here i'm freaking soaked (laughs) like (laughs) sorry (laughs) okay probably bigger problems here but um this time though don claimed to be able to control the rain so they thought that the first exorcism had fixed the problem but i guess it just gave him more control over the rain so now he's like Working with the demon, maybe they're buddies now. So, a security guard told Don to prove it, and he's like, Okay, if you can control it, make it rain in the warden's office. And then, the warden, who was not aware of what had happened at all, he was sitting in his office, and then he was surprised when all of a sudden there was just a large wet spot on his shirt. I
0: can't, I'm just imagining <laughs> like sitting. In my office, and I look down, and there's just a wet spot on my shirt, and it just keeps growing.
1: <laughs> like, what? Like,
0: <laughs> where is this coming from? I also love that the security guard, to prove it, didn't say, like, make it rain on me. He was like, hey, <laughs> make it rain on the warden.
2: Like, what? Well, yeah. And then the security guard went into the warden's office, and he, like, saw the wet spot on the shirt, and he was like, dear God. <laughs>
0: so (laughs) hey sorry about this this was kind of my doing my bad yeah i told him to like oh no i've done an awkward conversation done
2: something bad (laughs) so anyway cue the second exorcism slash prayer because i guess they were more like it was like kind of like a prayer circle instead of like a priest like throwing water on him and he's like flopping around everywhere. It wasn't quite like that, at least in the reenactment (laughs) in the eighties reenactment. But so they had a prayer circle and then Don says that the rain episodes have not happened since. And he thinks that this was his grandfather abusing him one last time from beyond the grave. That's his hypothesis. So he was like, this jackass just had to get at me one more time. So yeah, (laughs)
0: I don't even know what to say. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Um. And I did read another article that said this whole thing, once he was at the Kiefer's house, it started with him seeing some sort of like apparition upstairs. And that's when he started to feel like uneasy and came downstairs and told like the Kiefer's about it. And then it started raining, but I mean, there's so many different stories, Um, but according to the Kiefer's and the officers, besides the chief, obviously, um, they all stand by the fact that they cannot fully explain what they saw that day. So who knows? Oh, another thing, though, in 2012, Don was arrested again for arson. So like the opposite. (laughs) And he said it was a restaurant that he set on fire, but apparently he was, it was insurance fraud. And the owner had like basically hired him to burn it down. So he's not exactly the most honest guy you've ever met, you know? Well, he can set the fire and put it out. Not anymore. Not since the second exorcism. Now he can just set fires. Valid. He's like, oh shit, my powers yeah. are gone. No, he's probably like he, <laughs> Sorry, you know what? I hate water. So now I deal in fire. <laughs> but that is the story of the Rain Man of Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, John Decker.
4: In the mid-1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing they were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victim's families and friends and people who worked these cases Along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. Unfortunately, with serial killing, the more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for still from the reporter's notebook, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey,
2: it's Grace. And today is going to be a little bit of a different episode, Uh, maybe a little spooky. We'll see where it goes. Um, But I'm just going to dive right into it. So Valentine's Day fell on Saturday in 1981. It was a cold, clear day. I actually looked up the weather. I uh, got that idea from Amanda because she does that kind of shit.
0: I was going (laughs) to say you pulled an Amanda on
2: that one. (laughs) I did. (laughs) It's pretty cool. You can even see how fast the wind was. It's crazy. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so it was a cold, clear day and 12-year-old Todd Domboski was near his grandmother's house helping his cousin Eric Wolfgang work on a motorcycle. Suddenly, Todd spotted wisps of smoke coming from a grassy area. Of course, being a 12-year-old, this caught his attention and curiosity, so he went over to investigate. He said that he thought it may have been a cigarette, and he didn't want anything to catch on fire. Without warning, the earth suddenly opened up beneath him. First, he was only knee-deep in the mud and smoke, but as he fought to pull himself out, the ground dropped more, sending him deeper into the earth. Think like a good old-fashioned sinkhole like in the movies, but with fire. He sank until his head was several feet below the surface, all the while screaming for someone to come help him. All Todd could smell was sulfur, like he was descending into hell. Luckily, he was able to grab onto a tree root, and within a minute, his cousin was there pulling him out. Todd was covered in warm mud, lightheaded, and I'm sure was very shaken, but otherwise he was okay. He was very, very lucky that his cousin came to his rescue so quickly because as well as the risk of being sucked into the earth itself, Todd had been surrounded by carbon monoxide gas and could have suffocated within minutes. He also found out later that the hole was 300 feet deep and 350 degrees.
0: My In a collection,
2: gosh. Yeah, right. <laughs> In a collection of photographs and photographs. Mm. In a collection of photographs and short statements by Centralia residents published in 1986, Todd recalls going to the hospital afterwards and feeling like he was going to pass out. That night, he couldn't even have a blanket on top of him and would have recurring nightmares about falling into the hole. It didn't take long for state and federal politicians to get wind of this story, which illustrated the dangers these residents were facing every day. Increased media attention was also a catalyst for new actions to be taken on state and federal levels. This is not the opening scene of a horror novel or movie. This was the tipping point for a small town that had been suffering the consequences of a tragic accident for nearly two decades. It was the beginning of the end for the small town that is now a ghost town and dark tourist destination. Welcome to Centralia, Pennsylvania. So I started researching this episode for the spook factor, obviously. Um, So of course I had to start with a creepy sounding story, which is true, by the way. Um, But what I found in my research was a town with a rich history that was destroyed by conflict as much as it was by the fire. So I'm just going to start from the very beginning. So sorry, this part's a little dry, but it's important. (laughs) The land that would eventually become Centralia and the small surrounding towns was bought at a Philadelphia auction for $30,000 by a former French sea captain named Stephen Gerard. He purchased the land because he had heard about the rich deposits of anthracite coal. So if you're familiar with any of the old mining towns in Pennsylvania, you know that anthracite is the cleanest, burning, rarest form of coal, and therefore it's the most valuable. Um, I spent my early childhood in Montour and Columbia counties, and that fact has been burned into my brain somehow. Also get
1: it? Burned. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
2: anyway, a man by the name of Jonathan Faust opened the Bullshead Tavern on the land in 1932, giving the area its first name, Bullshead. Despite knowing about the mountains of anthracite beneath the earth. Gerard did little with the land, but in 1842, the land was purchased by the locust mountain coal and iron company, a mining engineer named Alexander. I don't know if it's Rhea. Re. do you have any insight on that? Sarah R E A.
0: I would have even just said Ray because it's Ray. like the first syllable of Reagan, like Ronald Reagan.
2: Yeah. Okay. We're going to say Ray. <laughs> seems like the easiest I'm so sorry if that's not right (laughs) so he moved his family there and began drawing up plans for a town with streets and lots Ray who was the borough's founder named the town Centerville but later changed it to Centralia as there was already a Centerville registered with the post office in Schuylkill County the Mine Run Railroad was completed in
0: 1954
2: nope 1854 (laughs) And suddenly, the coal business was booming in
0: Centralia. Is that another pun?
2: Yes. Thank not <laughs> pun. Literally not, not intentionally.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Boom. Thanks for pointing that out. You're the best. Yeah,
0: I'm proud of you.
2: <laughs> um. So. Now they had a way to efficiently move massive amounts of coal out of the mountains to sell to surrounding areas. The town was incorporated about a decade later and had about 1,300 residents. Unfortunately, Ray met an untimely end on October 17th, 1868, but we'll get to that. By 1890, the town peaked in population at uh, 2,700 residents, most of them miners and their families. According to a census from this time, the town had two theaters, five hotels, seven churches, a number of saloons. I've seen as many as 27. Like, that's crazy. A bank, a post office, and 14 general slash grocery stores.
0: Maybe all the residents knew that their town was just going to burn, so they just tried to drink away the sorrow of the future.
2: It's maybe, but that's
0: that's a lot. I mean, that's 2,700 residents with upwards of 27 saloons and you figure half of the residents were
1: probably children. So, so
2: that's
0: like,
1: you've got like one saloon for every 50 people. Yes. (laughs) Well, could it be for passing people that are coming by or driving through? It could be. Yeah, that's true Um, too. Yeah.
2: But there's, there weren't really a lot of built up areas around there. I mean I'm not really sure what like Bloomsburg and stuff what they were doing at the time but That's true. I mean maybe it was like a destination I'm not sure but 2700 residents in 27 saloons is... <laughs> and I thought That's it was insane. a mistake at first until I saw it in multiple sources I was like oh casual okay <laughs> Um. so yeah they drank a lot there <laughs> anyway So, when the U.S. became involved in World War I, many young men left coal mining towns to join the armed forces. This caused a decline in production, furthered by a series of strikes after the war. Cheap fuel oil became available, which lessened the demand for coal. Then the stock market crash in 1929 caused five mines in and around Centralia to close. During these tough times, some people resorted to bootleg mining, where they were um, going into abandoned mines on their own to extract the coal. Um, The issue with this was that no one was paying any attention to the fact that some of the coal had been left to hold up the roof of the mines. So, I mean, they would just pull that out, and that caused the ground above to become, become unstable, and subsidence, basically, sinkholes formed In the mid-1950s, the demand for anthracite coal was waning, but through it all, Centralia survived and even thrived. What remained was a close-knit community of about 1,500 that boasted safe neighborhoods and was said to be a great place to raise a family. And the town was apparently really beautiful. Um, There were huckleberry and laurel bushes in everyone's backyards. It was just a really nice place to live. So unfortunately, what did eventually take down the town was a coal seam catching fire in 1962. The exact cause is sometimes disputed, but it's widely believed that the burning of a giant trash heap is what caused the still-burning fire. Uh, Trash was a problem in Centralia at this time. There was apparently a problem with odor and rats, and it was just gross. Um, So the city council proposed a solution that they hoped to implement before the town's Memorial Day festivities. So they decided to set the landfill on fire. And that's exactly what local firefighters did on May 27th, 1962. And apparently this isn't super out of the ordinary for that time, but like your town is built on coal,
0: so yeah it's really common to especially in you know that time to have firefighters like on standby when doing anything like that um a lot of farms will also do like big burns like Mm -hmm. controlled burns because it makes the soil richer I guess so that's really that's kind of crazy
2: yeah, I've heard of controlled it, burns did it for time. stuff like that, but as far as trash, like, I guess it's an efficient way to get rid of it, but it just seems like such a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this town was built on coal, so Jeez. the landfill was actually directly on top of an old strip mining pit. So when the fire wasn't completely extinguished, it made its way down into the mines around the pit. And that's the most widely believed theory of how it started. There are some people that say it had started before this um, somehow, and it wasn't really realized until this time, but it's most widely believed that it started when the trash was burning. Um, Apparently it was put out, someone called about it. And the firefighters came back and put it out again and they were satisfied. They were like, this is fine. And apparently it was still going. So it worked its way into the mines. And then once it did, it didn't take long for it to be widespread. It traveled under the streets and caused unsafe carbon monoxide levels in the mines. Attempts were made to put out the fire, but they were all unsuccessful. Um... I mean, they tried so many different things, and they even put vents in. There's a lot of them still up today. Um, God, I can't think of what the actual word for them is, but it's basically just tubes that were put in the earth to try to vent um, vent it out. But um, nothing worked to put it out completely. Eventually, it got much too expensive to even attempt to extinguish the flames, so the mines were closed. Um, And there were so many, there are so many abandoned mine tunnels that any number of them could be fueling the fire. And it would be impossible to pinpoint exactly which one or ones
0: are stoking the fire. Do you know when they made the decision to close the mines? Like, was it, I mean, what they did this burn in May of 1962, was it like in June of 62 or were they attempting for like years and then they... They were
2: attempting for years. I'm not sure at what point they really like closed the mines because, you know, it didn't spread into all of them right away. Um, but they were trying for years and years to put it out. And though the fire was a known issue, Centralia residents actually didn't think much of it. They believed that the state government would come in and help them extinguish the flames and life would just move on. Um, And I mean, like I said, there were many attempts to put the fire out. There were a couple of families that were displaced from their homes in a specific hot area, but that was it for quite a while. For almost two decades, people continued to live their lives, starting families, going to work, um, only sometimes advising their children not to play in certain places that could be potentially dangerous. Eventually, though, things started to happen. As time passed, the ground under the town became hotter and hotter. Smoke rose up from sinkholes, similar to the one that Todd Domboski found himself in in 1981, and carbon monoxide found its way into basements. Greg Walters wrote for People later that year, saying that graves in the cemeteries were believed to have been dropped into the abyss of fire that rages below them,
0: which that's a serious
2: creep factor there, so... (laughs)
0: Yeah, um, I mean it makes sense. I never would have thought of that. But
2: that's yeah. insane. I think there were three cemeteries and the one that you pass when you're going on 61 is Odd Fellows and that's the one that's like closest to where they believe the fire started. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so I'm not he said it's believed so I'm not sure how true that really is, but it's kind of a gruesome image.
0: I mean, I feel like they're not going to go digging to see if graves fell. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, that's crazy
1: though.
2: Mm-hmm. Two years before this, a gas station owner who also happened to be the mayor at the time because small town, um, reported that the temperature of his underground gas containers was a hundred degrees higher than normal. Like, Oh shit. <laughs> And you'd think that all these issues, um, as they began to ramp up, the residents would agree that it was an unsafe place to live, pack up and find a new town to live in. But that's not what happened.
1: Well, can I ask a question? Cause all I can think about is like the health effects. and I can't even imagine how no one had picked up on it or maybe it was like low key at first. But I can only imagine the impact of, like, their health and stuff. Like, I don't know. Is that, like, not something that happened?
2: Yeah, it definitely did, but it did happen slowly. Um, and eventually the there were... Um, <clears throat> I don't know if it was at the state level, but they sent in people to put carbon monoxide like monitors in people's homes. And they were these like big black ticking boxes that would basically like scream if they detected carbon monoxide. Um, And I think some other gases as well. But that definitely was an issue. And small amounts of carbon monoxide, some people just wrote off as it's a mining town. So it happens. Right. it did become a very widespread problem, and it was um, a big concern.
1: I, I don't think that the CO2 would be the only uh, issue for health concerns because you're burning a product, and those particles you're breathing mm-hmm. in It's not just the CO2. I can only imagine the impact on your lungs. And like, yeah, there was
2: know. a whole um, section of neighborhood where basically all the kids had asthma, And it, yeah, there were some huge health effects, but, um, we'll see as I get further into this, there was a group of people that just kind of didn't believe that it was really that bad. They kind of wrote off some of the things as like, well, it's a mining town. I mean, these gases occur and stuff like that, but there were especially like patches of the neighborhoods that suffered some really ill effects.
1: That's just terrible.
2: Yeah. So I grew up around this area and I was always fascinated by like the spookiness of it all. I was born in 1989. So I've only ever known it as like a ghost town with a church, a cemetery and a few houses. And it was like a place where cool smoke comes out of the ground and this old stretch of highway that people constantly graffiti with penises but at, <laughs> But at one point, this was a real town that real people lived, worked and died in, and they would live in houses that had been their grandfathers, that his father had built after emigrating from Europe to look for a better future in America. And these were people with deep roots that were really proud of their community, and some of them did not want to leave. So some chose the sense of community and the life they had built and wanted to stay, and some chose the safety of their families and wanted to leave, and this caused a deep divide in the town. And now the people who wanted to stay weren't just like, screw my family, I like it here. Most of them honestly did not believe that what was happening was that bad. Like falling into a fiery pit sounds really hellish, but some would say that there had been subsidence and unstable ground long before the fire and that toxic gases were just a fact of life for a mining town like theirs. Um, So like we had been talking about Chelsea, some people just kind of brushed it off. Um, It's kind of like, I mean, some families really, really suffered health effects. But I like the families that didn't, they were like, mm, are they really suffering that badly? There was just a lot of questioning. And like I said, a really deep divide. Um, so a friend lent me a book of photographs and statements from Centralia residents that was compiled by Renee Jacobs in 1986. It's called Slow Burn. Um, And there are a number of well-researched books on Centralia, but I enjoyed this one because it was a really poignant collection of the different opinions held by residents in the 80s, and that was only about two decades after the fire started, when things really started going downhill. Um, It's a snapshot of a very specific time in the town's history, and I'll post a couple of photos from the book on Instagram. Um, I promise I'll cite them properly. Please don't sue me. In 1979, the Concerned Citizens Group was formed. And at first, the group's purpose was to pressure the state and federal governments to find a way to put out the fire. And then when it became apparent, um, so there's an answer to your question, too, Sarah. I mean, this was in 79 that they were still trying to pressure the government to put it out. So it was years and years. Okay, yeah. Um. So... But then it became apparent that just wasn't going to happen. So the group was renamed the Centralia Committee for Human Development, and its focus was securing government funding for families that wanted to sell their homes and move elsewhere. And then, of course, an opposing group was formed, this group, Residents to Save the Borough of Centralia. And I was like, oh, my God, think of catchier names for these committees.
0: (laughs) They're (laughs) so long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the RSBC.
2: Um, yeah. Um, but this group was determined to preserve the community at all costs. They really believed that things weren't as bad as everyone else was making them out to be. Um, and there was, of course, intense conflict between these groups. In 1984, Congress decided to buy out the residents and pay them to move. Um, this, at this point, was entirely voluntary, and a lot of residents did decide to leave. And then once they left, their homes were demolished. And in this book, there's a lot of just really sad memories of people watching their neighbors vacate their homes and then having to see, like, the bulldozer come in and just level them. Um, yeah, it's, it is really sad. And there were many people who were disgusted by the idea of the government who had ultimately failed them taking their homes away because in the beginning, they were like state and federal government is going to be Superman and just come in and fix all this. It's going to be fine. And then, I mean, when does that really happen? (laughs) So these people are just very disillusioned with the government and they've had enough. So they were like, now you're going to come take our homes away. And some believe that the government was only trying to get them to leave so they could tear up the land and set up their own mines and make their own money. Um so a lot of people continued to fight hard for their town for years. Um I'm going to read just a couple quick ex- excerpts from this book that I was talking about. So this first one is from someone who was on the side that wanted to stay in Centralia that things weren't that bad and um they just wanted to stay in their home. He says um we don't have a problem here. The kids play up and down the street. There's no gas here. No problem with the boreholes. Boreholes. That's what the, um, the vents were. But across the backyard where it outcrops to the surface and where Todd fell in. So that's Todd Domboski that fell into the um, sinkhole. That's dangerous. If a kid falls in there, he's not getting out. I don't know how Todd did. The hole wouldn't have to be very big to scald you to death either. They filled that one with a couple of wheelbarrows worth of dirt. I'd sure feel guilty if anything happened to one of my kids, wouldn't you? But everyone has that little voice inside that tells them what's right and wrong. And if I leave, I'll be going against what that voice tells me is right. My heritage, my past, and my soul. And then we have someone else who was very on the side of selling their home and just getting out of there. So this is actually the aunt of the person that lent me this book. So they definitely have some, yeah, serious roots in this town. So she says, I joined the concerned citizens right after I graduated from high school. I got very involved, and when the original officers resigned, they nominated me to be president. I was 20 then. I was scared, but we needed somebody to keep the group above water, and I didn't want to let anybody down. We set up an office and initiated the $30,000 grant that brought Honor Murphy into town. Um, she was, I believe, a nun that um, helped with like disasters like this. And started the Centralia Committee for Human Development. I learned that the government really isn't fair to the small people. You have to have an awful lot of people to make a difference to the government. They might pretend that they're listening to you, but they're not. I thought we fought pretty well for the number of people we had. I also realized there are a lot of narrow-minded people in the coal region. They can really be ostriches and stick their heads in the sand and say that nothing is wrong when it's right in front of their eyes. I couldn't just sit by and watch. When you have something in common to fight for, I can't believe how close it brings you to the people you're working with. I don't mind going to the meetings. It got to the point where I would look forward to the meetings because I felt like I was accomplishing something. Nobody came up to you and said, nice job besides the people you worked with. I got along fine with my neighbors until I started opening my mouth saying that we needed to be relocated. I wasn't trying to tell them that they had to move. I was just saying that I wanted to be relocated because I felt it was dangerous living in Centralia. So those are just like two very opposing views. And they, the book is great because it just kind of goes back and forth between them. There was a woman who like refused to take communion from one priest because he supported people staying in the town and coming together as a community and not leaving and she's like, I'm not taking communion from you. Like, it just, it got so bad. But also that's that kind of reminds me of right now. There, it's like, the parallels are insane.
0: <laughs> well, and that's what I'm thinking is, I'm like, goodness, this doesn't even sound like a real story. It feels like this is just an allegory for the way people act in society. But mm-hmm. like, nope, this is, this happened. This is very true. But it... I think we definitely see a lot of that in any conflict.
2: Yeah. And this next part, not to get like all political, but it's just the parallels to right now are crazy. There's an excerpt from Lois Gibbs. She's an activist. Um, Look up Love Canal, um, but carefully because that could go very wrong if you're Googling that. But it was um, actually a disaster. So she was an activist that had to do with that. I won't get into it, but, you know, just be careful on the Internet. (laughs) But she was speaking about Centralia and the lack of support they received from the government. And she said there is no such thing as objective science when politics is involved. And I was just like, ooh. (laughs) So. Not to take the focus away from Centralia itself, but, I mean, history just repeats itself over and over again. Yeah. So then in 1992, all of Centralia's buildings were condemned and its zip code was eliminated. Some residents sued for their rights to stay and remained in their homes. The lawsuit actually lasted for 20 years while the town's population continued to decline as people left willingly or were evicted, and eventually eight people were allowed to remain, but their properties technically still belong to the Commonwealth of PA under eminent domain. Um, The rights for the current residents are not transferable, which means their properties cannot be passed down. So once they pass away, no one else has rights to their homes besides the state. Uh, remaining structures include the municipal building, which actually wasn't built until 1978, which is 16 years after the fire started. And Interesting. I know, right? <laughs> and Ukrainian Catholic Church, Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which still holds services. It was determined by a geological survey that there is solid rock under the church, not coal. So there's no danger of the building collapsing into the fiery coal seams. And I feel like there's some kind of symbolism in there somewhere.
0: (laughs) There's actually a a Christian song in there that we used to sing in like daycare. Weird. (laughs) Yeah. About building on a rock and not on other things.
2: Not on yeah. fiery coal seams. That's exactly <laughs> you how You know, those aren't goes. the
0: exact <laughs> lyrics, but I, I think it's pretty close. Yeah.
2: I bet. Yeah. So I found a quote from former Centralia resident Jack Cuzo, who mo- moved to a nearby community in 1991. And this is from an article by Peggy Lee for WNEP. It was sad. We had tears in our eyes when we left the house because we didn't expect to ever move out of there, but we did said Kuzo. I think it was hard for people who who lived in Centralia because they had lived there longer. He still gets a bit homesick every time he passes by what's left of his former community. We passed there today, matter of fact, and when we passed, I point out I pointed out where our driveway used to be and you actually can't even tell anymore because it's all grown in and the trees and everything. And I mean, yeah, just remember, I mean, the people that live there live there for generations. So they did not plan on moving out of their homes. Centralia is actually one of 38 known mine fires in Pennsylvania, but it's by far the worst and most well known. And there's plenty of them, too, across the United States. It's fairly common, but not to this extent. According to Pennsylvania's Department of Environmental Protection, the blaze could go on for another century if uninhibited. Today, the town is nothing more than a church, cemetery, a municipal building, along with a grid of empty streets and overgrown lots. You can still see smoke and steam, and yes, it is creepy, especially when you're driving through it at night when it's foggy and you're convinced pyramid head is right around the corner and get to the church, but anyway... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh it's certainly an interesting place to visit uh you can no longer travel graffiti highway because locals got tired of disrespectful tourists and all of the neon penises so now it's covered in dirt so you can't go in there anymore unfortunately um
0: that was recent see- right
2: it was that was just in the past like with- year or
0: two okay
2: it's it happened since the um pandemic started
0: okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But you can still explore what's left of the town. Um, if you decide to do so, just make sure you heed any posted private property or danger signs. And keep in mind that not long ago, Centralia was a bustling town with residents that were really proud to call it home. So this is just an interesting note. The fire, um, began just months after the trial of Frank E. Sank. A traveling salesman from Williamsport for the brutal murder of a 13-year-old Centralia resident, Jane Benfield. Uh, he was found guilty and sentenced to die by electric chair, but that sentence was eventually commuted to life in prison. He actually escaped from Western Penitentiary um, in Pittsburgh in 1977 and was recaptured in St. Louis. <laughs> I know, it's My wild. gosh. And I'm not suggesting that he had anything to do with the mine fire. It's just coincidental timing and a reminder that gruesome murders happened even in sleepy little towns in the 60s. So lock your freaking doors, people. <laughs> Seriously. So that's the story of Centralia as a town and the end to part one of this story. So stay tuned for part two. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makens. production assistance from Darren Makens. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.